Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Eco Chic, a podcast all about practical science and sustainability. My name is Laura, and I am a graduate student studying climate science. If you're new to Eco Chic, welcome. I'm really, really excited to have you here. Every week, we're talking about climate change from a whole bunch of different angles, but also just personal tips on how to be a more responsible citizen of the planet. Let me set the scene for this. This is going to be the first episode in a series that I'm calling Happy Hour, and Happy Hour is going to be exactly what it sounds like. It's going to be me and some friends just having some drinks and hanging out and talking about science and sustainability. I'm really, really excited about this. I've been wanting to do it for a while because I believe that the best learning that I've done has been in seminar style tables with people just asking questions that really make me think. It's not about being lectured at and the whole point of EcoChic is to make sustainability and climate change information really casual and really attainable for everybody. So this will be a series of you just hanging out with your smart friends and chatting and building off of each other. And I'm just really excited to be bringing this first episode to you. I am currently studying in Chicago at UIC. Um, They have a summer institute in sustainability and energy, which I'm currently a part of. If you want to know more about it, we like briefly talk about it in the episode. But if not, please send me an email or something so that I can give you some more information on the program. But anyway, I'm really excited to be having this first episode of the Happy Hour series talking about energy. I did talk about energy earlier on the podcast. I want to say it was episode four or five, and it was just called All About Energy because energy is something that is so, so important to talk about when it comes to moving towards a carbon-free grid. We need to be moving towards a carbon-free energy source, multiple sources, ideally. It is 2018, climate change is happening, and we know that it's caused by humans burning fossil fuels 100%. So for this reason, it's important that we're talking about all of our options when it comes to energy and powering our society. So I have a bunch of friends on this episode. I met with about six people, again, just hanging out casually, and everyone's coming at it from a different angle. So I'm really, really excited for you to meet all these people and to hang out a little bit and ask your own questions. And of course, if you have any ideas or information of things that you would like to hear in this capacity of the Happy Hour series, please go ahead and let me know. I'm really excited about this again. I will go ahead and just acknowledge that there is some explicit language in this episode. So if you're like hanging out with small kids, maybe you don't want to play this in the car, but we are again, just being honest and being real. It's a little bit longer than my usual episodes because we just really got into it and I'm really excited for y'all to hear it. I'm really excited to be doing this. Thanks for being here. Let's go around the circle and introduce everybody. So just like briefly give your name, give what you specialize in, what you do. All right, so my name is Jessica Chow. I'm an incoming undergraduate senior at UC Berkeley. Um, I'm majoring in nuclear engineering. I'm getting a minor in public policy. And I'm really interested in the energy advocacy and education space. Hi, my name's Patrick Eels. Um, I studied engineering and I uh, have some experience consulting in the energy industry. Hi, my name is Shreya. I studied environmental science and I'm about to start my master's in urban and regional planning. And I'm interested in the interconnections between renewable energy, transportation, and the environment. Hi, my name is Sophia Liker. I just graduated from from my undergrad at UC Berkeley with environmental science. I'm really interested on how to use GIS and mapping technologies to assess suitability locations for renewable energy. What's up? I'm uh, CJ Casey from uh, University of Illinois at Chicago, known as UIC. I'm studying electrical engineering and uh, another degree in physics from Carthage College. And uh, I kind of just got introduced to the renewable energy field and uh, I'm trying to kind of see which way I want to go and like what paths I want to take down it. All right, awesome. Well, thank you guys for hanging out and drinking alcohol. Um, so tonight for the inaugural episode of this short series, I'm very, very excited that we're gonna talk about energy. Um, energy is something that I didn't really think about until probably like six months ago. I took this class and the first day of the class, the professor was like, when you plug your laptop into the wall, do you ever think about where that came from? And that was it, that like stuck with me and really just like fucked with me a little bit. And I've been thinking about that a lot and I've been thinking about renewables a lot. And renewables are weird because there's not like a one size fits all solution to renewables. 
Um, in Florida, it makes sense to put up solar panels, but in the Pacific Northwest, there's a reason that they have wind turbines. So um, I would like us to kind of open up the conversation about different energy sources and things that you are passionate about that you see a future in and just kind of like get that going about energy because not everything has to come from coal. All right, so um, I'm Jessica, and so one of the issues that I'm most passionate about is um, STEM, energy, and nuclear education. So I feel like there's no standardized like nuclear education um, across the U.S. or even the world, and there's a major fear of radiation that definitely is a barrier to its adoption of like big nuclear, um, and especially a society that has a baseload sort of like demand for energy there is a demand for a baseload, carbon-free source of energy. And so where I feel that nuclear fits into this is that we can definitely provide that baseload energy. And a lot of the issues that come with that come from like lack of education, a lot of fear. Um, in California, Berkeley is very anti-nuclear, and that definitely shapes the way people view um, the energy landscape and even view like the solutions that come along with it. So when you say baseload, can you like define what baseload is? Absolutely. So um, no matter where you are, like there's always a certain amount, like a minimum amount of energy that is constantly used for like, lighting, air conditioning, really like keeping hospitals open 24-7 um, for schools. And so when the sun is not shining, when the wind is not blowing, you always will need this minimum amount of like baseload energy. And in those cases when our batteries like aren't efficient enough yet to like provide that storage, you're going to need like a carbon free, in, in my opinion, like nuclear is a solution here to provide that baseload energy and be part of a much bigger part of the energy mix. And for example, like France is like an awesome example of like a country that like really takes this to heart and like 80% of their like energy, like electricity, like generation all comes from nuclear and they sell that to like surrounding countries such as Germany and um, yeah. Cool. Um, does anyone have any ideas on like another renewable source that they think is like really has a lot of potential? Hi yeah so this is Sophia again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I am really interested and have done some research on looking to our oceans to actually harness some of the power of the waves and the currents found in our oceans. Um, and a lot of our coastal, coastal regions are really energy um, lacking in terms of solar power and wind power just because of a lot of rocky, unstable shores and fog incoming on the banks. So it's really hard to implement some of the more standard renewable energy sources. Um, and so I've looked at um, marine hydrokinetic energy, which is just ocean energy. And essentially you just take um, the tidal turbines, similar to wind turbines, and place them in the water but water is so much more dense than air, so you can actually ex extract a lot more energy out of that. Um, and you can also introduce buoy type devices to um, harness the up and down motion of waves. There's larger paddle type devices you can put in there. Um, so there's a lot of variety and these can actually be implemented on a wide scale and especially for small island countries where they have to import a lot of their energy, you can implement these in those specific locations. That's really cool. I didn't realize that. I knew that water was more dense than air, but I didn't really connect that to energy. So I'm really glad that you said that. Yeah. It's like instead of taking the wind, you can use the water. And there's a big worry with how that's going to affect the marine life. So that's a really big thing that I've had to look at at my research. But since water is so much more dense than air, you can actually take the turbines and move them at much slower speeds. So it won't impact the fish and various marine life in there. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They, so I, this is CJ, by the way, um, <laughs> I feel like we should like, yeah, okay, fair enough, whatever. Um, so yeah, going along with that, like turbines and like how they um, protect like the fish and like eco life and things along that nature. I learned a lot about uh, hydroelectric power and like hydroelectric power plants um, <clears throat> in regards to how they preserve fish life. And, like, so what they do is because like a hydroelectric plant is just all turbines and changes in potential energies and that's how they generate um, electricity is through that through a turbine that's dropping water from a certain height in a dam and dropping it down and uh, creating like a distinction that way and like creating electricity that way which 
when you do that to a dam, you do that to a river, you basically shut off an entire river. You create a wall that stops any type of fish flow from one side to another. So how do you send a fish through from one side of the river to the other side of the river without sending it through a turbine and chopping it up into sushi? You can't <laughs> unless... So what they've done, they've created a bunch of ways. They've either, like, added a second section of the river that the fish can, like, go down and, like, go around the hydroelectric dam or... They've created like these like fish ladders, which is super cool. It's like watching salmon swim mm-hmm. upstream. That literally like they can swim up these like fish ladders that are implemented in the sides of like walls that they can go. And I think it's just super like interesting to think about how you need to like find hydroelectric power and then or any type of like water energy or using things like that, but still have to think about like the environmental like wildlife that's gonna be impacted in that area. I'm really glad you brought that up because I never really thought about what goes on under a dam. I like recently saw the Hoover Dam, like I've seen the Hoover Dam before, but I saw it for a second time. And I was with my friend who was a geologist and she was telling me about dams from a geological perspective and how when you put a dam in, um, yeah, it's really great that you're like preserving the fish or whatever that's there, but you get a lot of like weird species that shouldn't actually be in that area right right and because the water is just sitting there it's also incredibly cold which a lot of people don't realize it's just like water that has been sitting for a long time and when they they'll like open up the dam once a year or something like that to refresh the water i'm not really sure what it's called and um i guess i can look that up but and it'll let the fish like flow through or whatever it is but because you're like sitting with all this stagnant cold water for so long you don't actually get the normal ecosystem of the area so dams like really fuck up an area like Mm. it's great for power but it messes up with a lot of wildlife are any of you guys wildlife people i should have asked that i I mean i'm sure and i was gonna add to this what's interesting again about rivers and how dams impact them is just there's a river there's different stages of rivers. So in the beginning, there's like the upstream where they're really small streams and there's certain nutrients, like certain amounts of nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. And those amounts change as the river gets bigger and more trees and other things get added in, like they just fall in from branches and whatnot. Those nutrients provide food and stuff for bugs and fish. And depending on what level you are on the, on the river, is what determines what species can live there. So when you stop a river in the middle of its kind of cycle or its um, level, then you've restarted it at the next level. So that kind of totally alters the entire path and the flow of how the river is supposed to end up at the ocean. So uh, the whole nutrient cycling thing is another thing to consider. Carbon, phosphorus, nitrogen, all those three like basic things of life that get impacted. Mm. Does that add to like any like soil and like build up? Yeah, it does. What, is it, it does. what does that like build up do? Erosion and um, yeah, mainly like erosion problems and the structural integrity of a river just totally gets altered because of a dam. Hmm. Because most rivers are supposed to be like meandering, like going yeah. back and forth and kind of wide. And when you do a dam, you kind of make it straight. So you've changed that like. The more curves a river has, the slower it flows, and it just kind of goes in a more natural path, and it changes over time. But the way we like to do it as humans is, once we make it into a straight path, it's good because we know where it's gonna go over time. And it's good for us because then we can build depending on where the river's going. But rivers are supposed to change, and eventually they're supposed to be in totally different paths. In like 100 years, a river's supposed to be in a different spot than it was. I also think it's really interesting to consider all this, especially as we take down dams, because mm-hmm. I know there's a big push for that. Um, and when you actually take them down, it causes all these nutrients to run off, and then you have an overstock below in the river. So it's something you also have to consider when removing these dams, because so much sediment and all these nutrients has built up before you flushed it back down. Yeah. But yeah, there, you're right. There is a big movement to remove the dams. And they're saying that Hydroelectric power isn't exactly renewable in the sense that it's yeah. it is pretty harmful to the environment. So sometimes, like companies won't consider hydroelectric as part as their as part of their renewable energy standards. Right. It's gone, Patrick. This is Patrick. One, one thing I was going to bring up as we go around and name up different energy sources: um, nuclear, 
people immediately think of the fear, real or perceived, of mm-hmm. um, issues with radiation and what are you going to do with the waste, with tidal energy. You brought up um, impacts on wildlife that's in, in the ocean with hydro energy or disrupting the whole flow of a river and we have all these issues with dams. And I bet any power source you could name, literally, I challenge you to find one where you wouldn't find some trade-offs. There's always, uh, there's always going to be something with wind energy. People talk a lot about birds that get killed. <laughs> with solar, there's rare earth metals that have to get mined out of the earth and often like unsafe working conditions and it's, that can be nasty. So anything, like anything is going to have trade-offs and so... There's always the question with this kind of thing of like weighing proportionality. I think um, it's nice to think of like solar. It is it's a beautiful idea. Like energy from the sun sucked in through these panels puts out free electricity for us forever. Like that's great. But there's there's always going to be some negatives, and so it it comes to a point of like weighing what those are, and we have to be clear-eyed about what they actually are. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, going along with that, it's. Basically, you're kind of weighing in on, are we either going to run out of gas or are we going to suffocate ourselves before we run out of these materials to make a photovoltaic cell that contributes to a solar panel? Like, I know I've seen a couple things, especially it was on Eco Reddit, so (laughs) (laughs) nerd diving into that, but there's these, like, conspiracies that people are saying that solar panels are so harmful or, like, not sustainable because... We're gonna run out of silicone. Yeah, it's that wrong. We can mine. Oh, it's what wrong. the hell does that yeah. even mean? Like the the, fucking, the amount of silicon like phosphorus we can get from the earth. They're saying that we're gonna run out of this. We're not gonna be able to produce enough solar panels to provide energy for the entire world before we run out of this silicone in our earth. Which makes yeah, sense. and a lot of times this this conversation can be had in bad faith where people will say. It use use these kind of things like against wind you always hear it like oh it kills so many birds that's terrible and yeah I'm not a big fan of killing birds either but when we talk about, <laughs> like the think ongoing the ongoing catastrophe birds, of coal, coal yeah. kills. like it's, we're not thinking about that comparison yeah and kids it gives asthma and cancers it causes yeah. it's like so my point is not I, I hope that didn't sound like I was naysaying clean energy it's just that we do have to be realistic about any energy source you can name, there's going to be the Some obvious downside. benefits yeah. and there's going to be yeah. the downsides. Mm-hmm. And, and like, we just have to think about realistically what are the downsides. And it's obvious that I'll use wind and solar as the examples are much lower downsides than coal. And so like whatever you can do to take coal off the grid, mm-hmm. we should do okay. ASAP. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I think it's interesting that there is definitely like this perception that once you go renewable you're not harming the earth whatsoever and you're living kind of harm-free as a human. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like a definite myth. Like every type of energy consumption like harms not only like the environment, but also like everything about your life. And there's definitely downsides to sort of this like perception that renewables are 100% environment friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that prevents us from seeing like kind of the big picture of like energy consumption and even though you're consuming energy from solar and wind there's you're still doing something even though minute sort of bad right does anyone know anything about battery storage because i think about that a lot when it comes to solar panels Mm -hmm. like solar panels are relatively inefficient like let's say the average solar panel takes in what like 15 percent 10 to 15 percent yeah like 10 to 15 percent of efficiency it's really not that great but solar is like hot and sexy and like people like people <laughs> no, want solar absolutely. panels. Like absolutely. people want solar panels, but we don't have an efficient way to store it. And the storage that we do have, like, it takes so many different weird minerals to make these batteries and they're they're not long term solutions. So if any of you guys like know anything about panels or like storage, I would love to hear it. So I think like a big issue is that um, although we have all these like awesome renewable sources, like their current technology with battery storage is that it's not good enough, not efficient enough, not economical to store all this energy. And especially if you're trying to do battery storage and energy storage over long term, so like weeks and months, Mm -hmm. we're simply not there. And so we can have all of the renewable energy that's intermittent, but if we're not able to store any of it for long periods of time, 
essentially these energy sources like solar and wind don't become viable in the long term. And so, I mean, like perhaps like that's probably why I'm pro-nuclear is that like, not only is there like current technology that we know how to use safely um, to produce a lot of this like energy in the case that we, we definitely don't have the battery storage for, but there's like a lot of like new nuclear technology and like all of these new nuclear startups that are investing in all these different types of reactors that not only are like more efficient, but more safe and definitely far more reliable as an energy source. And also to add on to that, I think a strong proponent of ocean energy is it's so consistent and predictable. Like wind and solar, you know, those are going to turn off at night. You know, the wind might not be blowing all the time. So to be able to predict in the long term, you can predict ocean currents, you can predict tidal turbines, all that sort of all that sort of stuff, you know, months and like even years in advance. And so to kind of fill in the gap when solar and wind go down in terms of the energy output, you can, you know, click on to your ocean energy and kind of incorporate that into the entire grid. Yeah, so kind of like going along with that, like one type of like renewable energy that I heard like looked a little bit into about, but um, not don't know too much. I know enough to be dangerous and say the name somewhat correct, I think. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's piezoelectricity or piezoelectricity. Mm -hmm. I've heard it being said numerous times, numerous ways, so I'm not completely sure what it is. But it's what it is, is you're harnessing the energy of uh, compression of like stress on crystals. So when you have a photovoltaic crystal, what happens is if you apply a stress to this crystal, um, there's an electric charge distributed across of it and you like depolarize basically this crystal and you're able to pass a current through there. And from that current, you literally can like light a light bulb. You can do things like that. So what there would have been, what has been like um, <clears throat> put into practice is they're trying to like do this on roadways. Like a car drives across something and you could put something on like Lakeshore Drive here in Chicago. Um, it has co- almost constant traffic flow. You have these photovoltaic plates basically that get constant compression on them. You can harness that energy and then basically take that energy and put it somewhere. But what has only been done so far, to my knowledge at least, there's probably a lot more studies going on that I haven't read research on yet, but it's only been used in the sense that it's like a crank lighting a light bulb. So basically as the cell is pressed, the light bulb lights up. There hasn't been any storage or like use like trying to store it in a capacitor and then pass along through a battery or anything along those nature with photo uh, with piezoelectricity and things like that. That's so cool. But I feel like the also the efficiency of it is also very bad. I think it's worse than solar panels in that it's near like seven percent something like that of energy storage with it. But I feel like you can expand on that and try to find a way to create like more of a DC energy out of a, a photovoltaic cell. That's so cool. Yeah. I've never That's really that. interesting. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And so would you harness this compression from like cars? Where did this so, compression come from? A few ideas I've heard. Yeah, you mentioned that cars yeah. driving over a piezoelectric is what Piezo. they call it. So Piezo. it's like yeah. a, yeah, it's a, like a crystal and when you compress it, it mm-hmm. creates some energy. People talk about putting putting them in sidewalks. Yeah, and like when high traffic walk. areas. Oh. There's even like mm-hmm. I think Adidas had a prototype where they put some piezoelectric thing right. in a shoe yeah, and would like that, run yeah. a computer on the shoe and tell you if you're running fast enough. Right. It is so cool. Like one of the things to keep in mind is it's it's not that much energy mm-hmm. and just it's like it can only be for example. Where's the energy coming from? It's coming from cars that are driving yeah. over it. Where's that energy coming from? From gas that you're putting in the cars mm-hmm. or electric. So it's like, it's, it's sort of downstream. It can never be like a huge right. source, but it is an interesting, I mean, it's free. Yeah. Yeah. What sense. if you like put it on trains, you know? That, that, that's, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's, I like that, that would be too. very consistent. Right. Yeah. And it's yes. a very heavy pressure. The thing is with these crystals and stuff, there's a lot of stress testing that you have to do with it to find what it operates best at, like what type of pressure it operates best at. Because if you put it on a two-ton train, you shatter the crystals and then you're fucked. You got uh, Like that's why it depends on like how much car, because if you have a truck running over this car area where you're used to a car that's, I don't know what the actual weight of a car is. Two but tons maybe? A, yeah, two-ton car. But then you have some massive truck coming through a 20-ton, 20-ton, 18-wheeler that destroys your crystal. Now you have to replace this. Now you have road construction. Now you have shutdowns and traffic, sh- shutdowns and transit. Right, and at that point, is it even worth it? Exactly, to, like, for how much energy you're actually it, yeah. putting into it. Right. 
So there's a lot of like unknown sciences that keep going with this. There's a lot more like studies going on. And with actually like another project that I did um, on this, what we did with piezoelectricity was we wanted to create um, stadium covers. So basically a retractable stadium roof because a real stadium roof is like $200 million if you want to put a retractable roof on over a stadium to just keep one athlete safe to keep um, events always running. Like you'll never not mm -hmm. have an event run. Um, <clears throat> so what it is is this, basically you put a piezoelectric um, tarp across like the top of the stadium that can roll out and roll in. It's a fabric, so it's very easily uh, maneuverable. It's wa not water permeable. And you throw it across there, so it'll protect the field, and it'll also conduct still electricity with water. Because so with piezoelectricity, you're also seeing that it's not just impact pressure that you're getting um, current flow through. It's also through like just like static compression pressure. So if so, basically, if you have a tarp that's getting rained on, obviously you have like a puddle of rain in the middle that'll get pushed down. So in a sense, hopefully you can gain electricity from that constant pressure being pushed down and it'll do like a certain X amount of volts running through this into a wire that hopefully you can store it somewhere, which science is still untested on that. But if you want to take that, store it somewhere in a stadium and then use that to light auxiliary lighting because it's not going to be that great. Like you can't run a vendor off it. You can't run a fridge that's sitting over there with it, but you can do like the auxiliary lighting, like the little LED lights that run down all like the pathways. It's just like little tiny things that can add up to bigger things in the future, or you prioritize all the bigger things where these little things are taken care of. Oh, that's super cool. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah. um, but also, back to your thing about storage, for solar, I've heard of these startup companies that there's one that's a huge one that's gotten like billions and billions of dollars of funding. Name? I can't remember the name. It was a, there was an episode on like 60 Minutes that talked about it. And it's very secretive. They said that they've solved a lot of the storage issues and that they can do kind of like, basically what they're saying is they would put solar panels up and then you would have like a, an AC unit sized thing, like a box that you could put outside your house and it would store long term with really thin cells inside. That's amazing. And it's, yeah. they're, they're not really divulging any like secret. Is they're not telling you. Like, for energy? I can't remember, like, I don't know. But but the thing is, the main thing is that Google and, like, other big companies are purchasing them. So, like, they're working. But um, I think that a lot of money has just kind of, like, disappeared. Like, that was that was a very interesting, like, it was multi-million dollar, like, investment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and look up the name. Is that, like, the Tesla, like, wall battery? The thing is, I know Tesla yeah. is creating these wall right. batteries. And hopefully to, like, kind of supplement their, like, electric fleet of cars. Right. But... Even now, even with the current like battery technology, like Tesla's nowhere near making this economical whatsoever. And I think that's like a pretty interesting kind of like aspect of like even having an electric fleet of cars in general is like not having the battery storage available to like power this. Yeah. One of the framing the battery storage thing, advocates of batteries will tell you that. Um, when you look at like the the cost of solar panels over a 10-year period like the last 10 years or something and you can extend it back further but in the last 10 years i don't know exactly the numbers but they've they cut the cost per installed watt or whatever mm -hmm. has come way down as they've scaled up so as you yeah. are producing more of them and you get better at making them and you bring all of the efficiency that you get from economies of scale uh, into the manufacturing process like the cost has come way down and incorporating research development all of that and th the same thing is happening with batteries the question is like fundamentally with lithium-ion is the best batteries we have right now where does that leave us um, it, it, as the price comes down there's some floor that we're gonna hit and is that good enough to like just put solar panels and batteries everywhere in our grid and the answer is probably not it, it actually brings up George Crabtree, um, mm -hmm. who's, who's yeah, our program. mentor. You'll learn about this tomorrow when you visit Argonne National Laboratories, where he runs a big program funded, big Show funding. 
Shout out Sice. Shout out George. Shout out Sice. Shout out Argon. I'll put like <laughs> all the information for this program in the show notes. If anyone's really interested in what we're doing, they can yeah. look into it and apply for next year. Shout out Ooh. federal funding of science. <laughs> <laughs> this big program is called J Caesar, and they're looking at what are what are future battery technologies beyond lithium ion. Because when you look at like the physics of what's the best you could do with lithium mm-hmm. ion, it's not quite good enough. He wants to get a factor of two or a factor of five better than that. Mm-hmm. And they need to do like some crazy physics stuff that I can't, they, yeah. ha- they haven't figured out <laughs> to make that happen. So I, I think, and it, it plays into the, the other point I wanted to make was <clears throat> always important with energy to keep in mind is the question of scale. Mm-hmm. So like all the different technologies we've named have way different um, scales in terms of how many gigawatts or megawatts of energy are they putting out. Nuclear as it stands, one of the like the huge um, pros of nuclear is it's it's a big stable source of energy. Like With it a could low be low land footprint. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's all very concentrated. So nuclear <laughs> nuclear I, I mean I've had experience in nuclear plants. I don't think they're pretty places. It's kinda ugly, loud, industrial, scary, like they spit out all this nasty water. They spew the, not nasty in the terms of environmentally impact. It's just this like kind of ugly, and I wouldn't want to go swimming in it. <laughs> it's not. Like it's not necessarily a fun away. place, but it's 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 extremely centralized. It's centralized. It's concentrated, and it is a ton of energy. Whereas you look at, um, <clears throat> like spreading a wind farm, and I'm a, I'm more of a just like inclined to like wind power than nuclear power personally mm-hmm. like on an intuitive level i think wind farms are kind of pretty but when you talk about spreading out wind farms across like the whole midwestern plains that that's that's going to like drastically alter a lot of landscape and so like when we talk about the scale of how many how many um tidal power stations would we have to put along all of our coastlines it's probably a lot more than we would nuclear stations. And I'm not like specifically picking one or the other. I personally like, I don't know, nuclear kind of freaks me out and tidal power sounds sexy. That's but when so we, natural. <laughs> don't worry about being afraid of nuclear is very natural. But when we, it's not... Yeah, when you think about like trading off those scale, like mm-hmm. how much space it takes, I think it's absolutely real to consider. I thought I would just touch on this a little bit. So like solar, like the land footprint of solar is so massive. And for the same amount of energy that perhaps like a nuclear energy power plant would output, you would need just so much more land. And in mm-hmm. kind of metropolitan areas, like do you even have this like not only land but like solar resource to kind of have that energy? The answer is probably not. And so what's really cool is that there's like a new nuclear technology. There are these small modular reactors at TerraPower, which is like a startup that like Bill Gates funds, um, is testing out these like new small modular reactors that can be scaled to whatever, I guess, like power output is necessary. And the land output, although like, obviously nuclear power plants are not pretty, um, but the amount of energy that you can churn out from these, I guess, sources is just like absolutely incredible. And if you want to be able to put like a massive energy resource near a metropolitan center with like a low land footprint, nuclear is the best way to go. Like you're not gonna find an energy dense source like that that's not nuclear as of yet. That's you know, not, as of yet. And yeah. it's not carbon emitting. It's it's, not there's no carbon. Absolutely no carbon. Yeah. That's what I was gonna say right now. I want you to uh, boast about how little carbon emissions there are for nuclear power plants compared to either like a coal or a gas power plant. Absolutely. So the, the, just to kind of debrief us like how nuclear power plants work, you have a lot of nuclear fuel, which I just wanna like define as not the same thing as like weapons, nuclear material. They're vastly different. Thank you so much. For yeah, so the thing <laughs> is, like, is nuclear fuel is 10% enriched uranium. And there are also other types of nuclear fuel, but weapons grade uranium is near 99% enriched. <laughs> so they're vastly different. And obviously there are not proliferation concerns, but kind of like breezing over that. Um, nuclear, the way it works is that you have a nuclear reaction, a controlled nuclear reaction, and that heats up water. Water boils, you have a turbine, and the turbine turns, and there's electricity. And there's absolutely no energy, a carbon output out of that, which is absolutely, I think, personally, 
incredibly impressive that you're going to be able to have such like a very intensive energy source. Um, yeah, go for it. Sorry. What? Oh, no, I had an itch. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were on a roll. Keep going. Yeah, yeah Thank so you. the thing is that I think a lot of people are, you know, justifiably scared of nuclear radiation. Like, coming Amazing. out of, like, World War II, after, food, after Hiroshima, Nagasaki, like, I think people are very right to be scared of nuclear. But I think at the same time, we need to educate ourselves about what radiation means. So, for example, living 50 miles near like a nuclear power plant, um, the radiation you would get from that is like less than the radiation you would get from flying from LA to New York in a one-way trip. Um, you're exposing yourself to so much cosmic radiation by flying in planes, and I don't think people what? know that. And that's so but just, interesting. Just by being alive, but flying just by in planes being is alive, a, but like, we're just we're irradiated. Like there's all the time. like a natural like the sun, background. You get a sunburn radiation. from radiation. Absolutely, and. Um, for example, like living in certain places in Colorado, because of like the geographic kind of like geologic, like as like properties of like where you live in like certain parts of Colorado, you're going to receive a natural higher background radiation from where you live. And I think no one really talks about that. For example, when you go to the dentist and you get an x-ray, you're mm -hmm. exposing yourself to a certain amount of radiation and same with MRIs, CAT stands, all of it is more or less like nuclear medicine, but you're, there is a radiation output out of that. And so I think my main point is that if you want to decrease your exposure to radiation, you're not going to like move away from like a nuclear power plant. You're going to stop flying. Like the easiest way to cut down on the background radiation that you receive is to just stop flying. Like stop going up so high in the sky where you like get exposed to this like cosmic radiation. But the point of this is not to say that you should be scared of flying because of radiation. <laughs> <laughs> People fly all the time. Like everyone flies. And yeah. I think the point here is that you shouldn't be afraid of flying the same way you shouldn't be afraid of a nuclear power plant. I'm more afraid not to have Wi-Fi on the plane than I am about radiation. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because I've, I've never thought about that. Like yeah. I fly a lot. And if I was living next to a nuclear power plant, I'd You'd be, be like, terrified, right? I'd be like, fuck this. Yeah. Like, I would be out of there so quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people feel the same way, but I think this is 100% education. There is no radiation standardized education across the United States. Elementary school kids, even their parents, you move through, like, everyone has, like, standardized physics, chemistry, biology knowledge. Like, there's a very basic base for that. Right. But when it comes to radiation, no one knows anything. Like, you have to, like, I mean, I've been studying nuclear engineering for a couple of years, and it's only after this time that I know these things. And that's, I think that's crazy. Yeah. Like, to not know that there is a natural background radiation present everywhere in the world is just so insane to me. I, I can't fathom it. Wait, that's crazy. Another thing that people don't talk about nuclear, which I don't even know if I should be mentioning because this could definitely no, be like a talk. whole other, this could be a whole other <laughs> No, let's do this, yeah. Is that people don't think about the waste associated. People are like, oh, we have nuclear waste and like for that reason we shouldn't use nuclear. The amount of nuclear waste that is produced via, you know, creating nuclear energy, whatever, is so, like, it's like a fraction of what we create based on like what we do with coal like you don't think about coal because we put all that shit into the air and people are like oh it's in the atmosphere and they don't think about like the physical mass of it and nuclear is just it's easy to visualize it's, it's easy to visualize because it's a solid and yeah. you think about that and it's like whoa that's crazy it's crazy because yeah. it's just these barrels that are sitting on top of mountains that need to be looked at for ten thousand years you know what's but it's super like super crazy is that we don't talk know, about that we don't talk about that and i think I think the best way that I've been able to visualize this from a professor is that if you were to take all the United States nuclear waste over all the years that we've been using nuclear, it would fill up a football field, raising up only a couple of meters. And if you think about the amount of like energy that we've harnessed from nuclear, that's a crazy low amount. That's crazy. And it's obviously it's like a con of nuclear, but also there are new types of reactors called breeder reactors that consume waste, that harness the energy that still is present in nuclear waste and kind of consume some of it and also decrease the kind of like radiation safety hazards of waste in general. And I think that's like super cool and like no one knows about it. Like if you were to talk to your even your like 
general engineering STEM educated college student, they wouldn't be able to tell you like, the different kinds of nuclear reactors that exist. No, this like, is absolutely not. I've heard of it. Yep. Yeah, so breeder reactors are really cool. There are also like new reactors coming out that have heavy liquid metal that is used instead of water to cool reactors, and it's more inherently safe. Um, there's also molten salt reactors where you kind of use like, molten liquid salt to cool reactors, and it's also more inherently safe. Um, the policies that the United States has about nuclear energy are so stringent that the amount of radiation even released mm -hmm. is so low. Like you would receive less radiation from a nuclear power plant than you would live do like living near a coal-fired power plant. Kind of question like regarding nuclear power plants and stuff yeah. like that. So obviously you can't throw one of these nuclear power plants anywhere. Um, did, I, did, Agreed. Does it, so based on location, they are obviously weigh in like natural disasters, things along that nature, because if that stuff happens to a nuclear power plant, it's much bigger of a economical and environmental impact than it is to a coal power plant sitting in like the city of Chicago or city in like a metropolitan area. Like yeah, that. like kind mm -hmm. of touching on like the regulation side. So all the nuclear reactors that currently exist in the United States have such regulations that they're able to withstand like an 8.0 earthquake. So the facility must be engineered in such a way that the plant must be safe from such an earthquake like that. A lot of the containment structures must have this structural integrity to withstand a 737 Boeing flight crashing into the nuclear power plant. Wow. And like th these are all like national security concerns, which is why the policy around it is so <laughs> fierce. But I think that people think that like nuclear reactors are like easily penetrable, which is like very <laughs> false. Like you, if you can fly a plane into a nuclear reactor and not have issues, then I don't think, you know, flying a drone into it would do anything. <laughs> it's, that's because of the Simpsons. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this unfortunately, has created such like a anti-nuclear movement. Yeah. And it's so disappointing. It really, really is. And because it crazily shapes people's perception of energy. And you'd be more okay with coal or natural gas than you would be with nuclear, which I think is Open so crazy. And I think both are very energy intensive. And if there was an option, you would obviously choose the carbon-free option. And I think that people like hmm, don't think about that. They're like, people plug in their thing. They're like, oh, cool. I have a solar like thing on my house. Like, I don't think about the other energy sources that right. I like consume from. Yeah, which is really interesting. I, I think it, like, the mentality. I, honestly, someone could probably like create a cult, like a course on the psychology of like the nuclear movement and like the anti-nuclear movement. And it's I don't know. It's really interesting. So many Americans are like convinced that this is like the worst thing in the world <laughs> it's because they've seen it fail in a bunch of places where they shouldn't be right and, and they I haven't been regulated at that point what's really interesting about i think a lot of people point to fukushima like the recent Jap yeah. japanese nuclear disaster um and it's really interesting that we frame it as a disaster so i think as with anything no matter what energy source you're going to have issues like disasters are imminent whether it be in the next five years or 20 years like, things are going to screw up and fuck up and something's gonna happen it was a fluke literally and they got smashed with an earthquake and then smashed with a fucking tsunami you're taking two punches from mike tyson right there you're literally taking a swift left from him and then right. without even looking anywhere else you're taking a swift right and you can't even fucking come back from that i know that people are going to debate this but from a lot of research less people have died from the radiation from mm -hmm. fukushima than the people who try to leave Fukushima as fast as possible. So like the fear of radiation has created a higher death toll than the actual radiation itself. And people trying to leave the city have like been obviously like hurt. And I think it's really crazy. And the thing is that after Fukushima, Japan is shutting down almost all of their nuclear plants, but no one thinks about, okay, what's going to replace nuclear, right? Japan is like a Import. very like, important like player in like the Asian you know continent and I think where is the energy going to come from now if they're shutting down all of nuclear same with Germany shutting all of nuclear what's going to happen what Germany does they're amping up their coal and natural gas input again and that's just so much worse for the environment and it's all stems from the fear of the radiation I think that this mentality that like the nuclear industry can 100% shield itself from all disasters is false mm. and to have trust in your institutions to be able to deal with these disasters, the same way we deal with hurricanes or like tornadoes or any other like natural disaster, 
is really important. We need to believe that like we can get over right. some sort of malfunction. And I think people's like lack of belief in like ourselves to solve these problems is also very interesting. So that's wild. Okay, so I will go ahead and let you guys know that we are at about forty minutes. I told you guys it was going to be like a 20-minute commitment. <laughs> but I'm very, very happy with the way that this has been going. Yeah. Um, as a final question, I'm just going to like go ahead and throw something wild out there. If you had to go ahead and pick like one really promising source of energy for the future, what would you pick? Because I, I personally would pick wind. I think that we don't talk yeah. about wind enough. And I think wind energy is one of those things that we're at a point right now where the infrastructure is relatively inexpensive if not on par with all the other infrastructure that we're putting out for renewables for hydro for solar and i think about animals a lot because my like my background is in animal biology so like solar panels are really bad for birds because birds just fly into them and kill themselves (laughs) but wind only really affects like wind turbines only really affect bats and it's not like I'm like anti bat or anything. <laughs> it's, it's a very it's like a one specific group of animal that it's like the least harm that we could really be har- like putting towards. And wind is also super efficient. Wind is like I want to say right now it's like about thirty yeah. percent max capacity. Mm-hmm. If I'm yeah it's, correct it's if I'm wrong, yeah. it's about thirty percent, which is like really really impressive for a renewable source of energy. So if I had to pick one energy for the future of our country, for the future of the world, I would pick wind. Yeah, and you know, wind would be fucking awesome if we can start these offshore wind farms that mm-hmm. are in uncharted waters over here that only Pirates of the Caribbean and Jack Sparrow can basically patrol. I agree. Yeah, I'm gonna hop on that too, and um, offshore wind is a big, there's a lot of potential in it, and then if you just throw some ocean power under it and then use one line to transport it back to the, yeah, transportation's huge. Yeah, if you get one line transporting both of those pieces of power back, you know, there's a lot of potential out there. I think that, I, I mean, wind and solar are also my top, but another one to think about is geothermal, because mm-hmm. geothermal. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about it. So geothermal basically is like from the internal heat of the earth, and using that energy um, is a, I think it's in the 70% efficiency yeah, no, it's, rate. I mean, yeah, the Earth is basically one massive nuclear reactor. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the sun is like a yeah. massive fusion yeah. reactor. <laughs> so geothermal, I think, is it is expensive, and you can only do it in certain places, mm-hmm. but as the technology gets better, we can figure out where those locations are. I think, like, Iceland is, like, Oh, they run a ton geothermal. on geothermal. That's a hot yeah. right now. Iceland, yeah. Iceland is 75% geothermal energy. Like, they're, yeah. Iceland is damn near 100. I think they're, like, 99.97% renewable energy uh, source. That's so yeah. crazy. That's yeah, that's... yeah, so any of my friends listening to this, I think I've said this probably a million times since I've come back from Iceland, but I went to Iceland, guys. I I've been to the holy land of renewable <laughs> I don't know if you, everyone's probably fucking sick of me saying this, but <laughs> yeah, I've been to Iceland. Um, <laughs> but uh, I need to ask you because I'm going in a couple weeks. Oh, so. yeah, I got to get there. We got this. We'll talk different after. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, seventy five percent of their energy is like all geothermal and mm-hmm. energy like that, and then the other twenty five is hydropower. Mm-hmm. Literally, there's one hydropower plant we went to. That's where like I kind of learned about those, um, like the fish ladders, and that powers up one entire massive city that's, I think it's, I don't know what the percentages are, I'm so off on these right now, don't fact check me people, but it's like, what, 35 to 40% of Iceland's population is in this one city that this one hydroelectric plant uh, powers, powers. but then like all the geothermal plants and all like their geysers there power all this other one, all these other ones. The only thing with geothermal, the bad part about it is is you still get carbon emissions because literally you're Mm -hmm. drilling into the earth. And then you're dumping, what you're doing, in a sense, is dumping water into this hot-ass pool of liquid magma. And you're spinning turbines with this steam that's coming up. And you control, <coughs> you control the steam via valves, things like that. And then once it goes through the steam, or goes through the valves and like that, you're still letting off carbon. And you're still letting off all that stuff. Yeah. So what they're kind of working on down there, I was actually one of our tour guides for Iceland, or one, one of our, I should say, 
camp counselors. His company, that's you, Patrick. Um, what, uh, what his company is doing, they're trying to specialize in like carbon capture. Right. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to capture like this carbon before it just gets released to the air because that's what basically what is it? CO2 getting released when you um, com- and essentially combust in geothermal energy. Um, you're, they're trying to capture this energy and turn it into some sort of fuel methane to fuel cars, which methane to fuel cars, is that's a completely different topic, but it's very inefficient. Like you can go maybe a quarter to a half of what you can on actual gasoline and ethanol, but still it's almost zero emissions in that with using methane in his cars but like that's what they're trying to do they're trying to capture it and like turn it into with reacting with other materials right to make we stuff. gotta get back yeah, on sorry. Sorry. Gotcha. what would you pick as your number one renewable my number one renewable would probably be shit i would probably or go energy with, source let's I'd, make it broad energy source. i'd probably go with wind or hydro yeah wind, yeah wind energy it's easy it's the easiest yeah all right, Patrick. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, don't worry about it. That's all good. It was I, I go to be on a closing question. Exactly. I go on <laughs> tangents. I'm sorry. That happens. <laughs> I like offshore wind, but other people already copped that one. I'm yeah. gonna go with. Uh, uh, you can think of like energy efficiency. So the the, the a penny saved is a penny earned. Um, <clears throat> what did I say? Um, energy efficiency. Energy efficiency is actually. Um, a, a great source of energy you can think about it that way in the same way you can think about a penny saved as a penny earned so um i think there's a ton of room for that in housing in the efficiency of the grid and uh efficiency of our cars anything you can think of where we can up our our ratio of energy or <coughs> like uh services versus energy in i think that's a that's a great source of energy. You can think about it that way. Um, for me, I think it would be still nuclear. I have more faith in the like nuclear technologies than I have in our like battery storage as of now. And it can be really difficult to scale up like two to five like efficiency like in batteries. And so yeah, the scalability of nuclear and its massive energy output will like improve so many developing countries like economies. It would just be incredible. And I think that would push us towards more like a developed world awesome. all right and laura how about you yeah oh you did talk about yeah that, i said right? when that okay. was my pick that was my first one wow thank you guys so much for doing this yeah this is really exciting a lot of editing to do this. <laughs> cheers, i feel like i probably won't edit that much but thank you guys so much for being here cheers everybody cheers, cheers. cheers. I hope you enjoyed this new happy hour episode of Eco Chic. Let me know what you thought of this series. I'm, again, so excited about just, like, talking about sustainability and science in such a casual way. So if you have any thoughts on the series, please let me know if you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions for topics that you'd like to hear about in the future, I have a couple in mind, but I would love to hear your ideas. If you want to get in contact with me, you can definitely slide into my DMs. I am at Laura E. Diaz. That's the easiest way to get in contact with me via Instagram. Otherwise, you can email me, laura at lauraedias.com. If you want to get in touch with any of my friends to learn about their programs or majors or expertise or whatever, please also go ahead and contact with me. Um, I don't really want to put their emails in the show notes because they're just regular people and I don't really want to, you know, put out that personal information. But again, please get in contact with me and I'll put you guys in touch because they're really, really interesting experts in their field and I'm sure any of them would be really happy to talk to you. So with that, thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you next week. Bye.